engaging our series through the book of 1 Corinthians. So if you want to head there in your Bible, if you have a Bible handy, uh, 1 Corinthians, and we will be in chapter 6. We're going to work through verses 12 all the way to 20. And this is a this is a passage that's pretty, man, it's, it's, it's really dense, incredibly significant, but it's important to understand how to move through it. And what I mean by that is, if we come to this passage with a, a presumption or an association with sex and sexuality, that sees sex and sexuality as something lower, dirty, something to be suspicious of, then it's going to skew how we read and understand these things. So we want to be careful, especially maybe if some of us grew up in contexts that were either um, very uh, religiously conservative or your only associations with sex maybe growing up where Sex is something that you don't do, it's something that you avoid. And, and most, maybe not all, but most of the associations connected with it were warnings that can skew our understanding of sex and sexuality over time. And it's important to read this as neither in a kind of sex negative way where we are bringing to the table this idea that sex is somehow lower or dirty or evil, but we want to also be careful not to read it through uh, sort of a modern cultural lens or invitation that sees uh, sex as, or always wants to frame sex and sexuality through the lens of being sex positive, which is short form for uh, any expression of sexuality is awesome and should be celebrated as long as it's consensual. This passage and actually, the next few chapters challenge Christians to avoid both of those sort of pitfalls. And what we want to do today is to understand there are a lot of warnings in this passage, but they're warnings that come from an idea. And that idea is this. The more powerful and the more beautiful something is, then when it gets distorted and when it gets misused, um, the consequences tend to be really significant, right? Things that are deeply valuable, that are incredibly beautiful, and that are profoundly good, when we see other people misusing them, it triggers us because there's a recognition that they don't recognize how this object, how this person how this thing is supposed to be handled correctly. And so the times as a dad where I have been most angry at my kids has been when they have been misusing or distorting something that is really, really, really good. I can get really mad at that. I have to watch that. But it, I'm not mad because the thing that they are doing is bad or evil and I want them not to do it. It's that they are distorting something so good. And that's how I want us to understand and move through this passage. So Paul starts here to confront the Corinthians, this um, incredibly uh, sexually liberated culture that would um, certainly rival ours in terms of 
the freedom with which people engage in all kinds of sexual activity, it begins building an argument for how to understand sex in the body from a Christian point of view. And so he, he confronts a popular saying that probably has its roots in Corinthian culture, everything is permissible. But that early Christians probably also adopted from a misunderstanding of what it meant to be free in Christ. Paul talks about the freedom that we have in Christ. We no longer are under the law, the Old Testament instructions and regulations. We are now free to live for Jesus. And so they looked at this cultural saying, everything is permissible. And they said, yeah, that totally lines up with what Paul has been teaching us about Christianity. We're free in Christ. Our sins have been forgiven. And so you can already see the momentum being, so we can kind of do whatever we want. That's the amazing thing about Christianity, right? That you can have your sins forgiven, and now you have the freedom to live into whatever you want, and you'll ne never be condemned. But notice what Paul says. He doesn't start by directly saying no. He quotes it, and then he says, okay, so you say everything is permissible, but not everything is beneficial. Everything is permissible for me, but I won't be mastered by anything. This is a huge Christian principle. Yes, for sexuality and how we use our bodies, but for all of life. Right? There's a difference. Paul wants to coach the church to understand. Let me just, let's just assume everything was permissible. You understand though, right, that there are things that will actually strengthen and enhance your walk with God and be beneficial. And there are things that if you gave yourself to them, you would ultimately be consumed and mastered by them. You would become ensnared by them. So even if everything is permissible for you, that shouldn't be the end of your thinking in terms of how now do I live as a Christian? You've got to at least put it through the lens of, well, is this beneficial? And will this help me to retain self-control so that I can use my faculties to be a blessing? Or is this going to be something that overwhelms and masters me? And Paul is in a really clever way coming at this indirectly and saying, yeah, we're not under the law in the sense that we have to keep the law in order to be justified before God, but the law shows wisdom. And we should, as Christians, indwelt by the Holy Spirit, be even more attentive to walk in ways that please and honor God. We are free in Christ to pursue righteousness fully. Not free to now just sin and have like this um, transactional view of God where I sin and then I come to God and say, sorry, not going to do it again. Totally going to do it again. And then God will forgive me that way. And I just cycle into that kind of immaturity. No, I am now free to live in a way that's truly beneficial, truly pleasurable, truly empowering to myself, to my spouse, my community, to my church. Then he quotes another saying, and this shows the Corinthians' view of sex in the body. And depending on your Bible translation, you will have the quotation marks in a different place. The quotation marks goes all the way to the end of, but God will destroy them both. In some Bibles, you'll just have the quotations on food for the stomach and the stomach for food. And then Paul is not quoting anymore and saying, but God will destroy them both. I think the new translation of the NIV and ESV have it right. The whole saying is food for the stomach and the stomach for food, but God will destroy them both. And this is the view of sex that says, listen, sex is just an appetite. God made it, you know, the God or the gods made a stomach to be filled with food. 
So that's what it's for. So you eat food. And at the end of the day, it doesn't matter because God's going to destroy them both. What, don't, what really matters is your soul, is your spirit, is your heart. So don't get caught up in terms of like what foods do I eat and different stuff like that. And then there's a parallel to sexuality, which says we have sexual organs, we have a body, we have sexual urges, and they're just like an appetite. So indulge them. And don't get too caught up on what's the context. and Like it doesn't matter. God's going to destroy the body anyways. So just feed the appetite. And, you know, maybe today people would say, you know, try and avoid doing harm by making sure that you're, sexual appetites are fulfilled in a way that is um, consensual. But this is a very low view of the body. It's a very low view of sexuality and sex. But it was prominent. And Corinthian believers who grew up in that culture were very tempted to say, oh, well, I guess Jesus has saved my soul. So what happens with my body and therefore with sex is not that big a deal. What God must be interested in is my spiritual life whatever that means. And that usually gets um, divorced from ground level reality. And so if I'm using my body over here like this, it, it doesn't matter because God's just going to chuck all this into the can and we're all just going to live with God forever in heaven, right? And Paul says, no, the body is not meant for sexual immorality. That's the word porneia any and all sexual expression outside of a heterosexual marriage. It's an interesting language. Paul says the body isn't meant. There's a purpose for sex. The body's been designed for a purpose. And it's not for sexual immorality. It's not to flippantly just satisfy sexual cravings. But the body is meant for the Lord. And that's provocative because, again, we understand that Paul is saying our bodies, our embodied existence, but there's a finer point being made in terms of our sexuality. The way we understand and express our sexuality is first supposed to be directed towards uh, honoring God. And he's going to make that point at the end. And the Lord for the body. Okay, that's weird because in this culture, your body is sort of like the prison for the soul. That's a very platonic idea, right? Plato talked about that. The, the, the body is the prison for the soul. You know, we're just kind of like a sophisticated meat bag. And what really matters is our spiritual consciousness. And Paul says, oh, you, you don't understand a Christian understanding of the body then. Because the Lord is for the body. He's not just for the redemption and renewal of your soul, but you. The totality of who you are. God is actually not going to just huck out your body at the beginning of eternity and then have us floating as individual dots of consciousness in a, um, in a disembodied existence. He says in verse 14, by his power, God raised the Lord from the dead and he will also raise us. How was, ra how was Christ raised? Was Christ raised spiritually Physically, and that's core Christianity. You hear anybody talk about the resurrection as a spiritual reality. I mean, it has a spiritual foundation to it, but if that's all it is, and it's not a physical re-embodiment in a resurrection body where Jesus can say to Thomas, come and touch, and he can eat fish 
with his disciples. And he can embrace people. Paul says, God's ultimate plan is to resurrect us into a reality that is embodied. That's Revelation 21 and 22. A new heavens and a new earth comes down from heaven and gets established here and now. And so Paul is saying, no, no, no. Not only is God not throwing out the body later on and all God cares about is the soul, God actually wants the renewal of your body. Your body is just as important as your spirit and soul. That's part of who you are. And that is a massive paradigm shift because Paul is saying the future of your body has here and now implications. And those implications are you must walk and treat your body and your sexuality with an enormously high degree of dignity and worth. It is not something to lower um, or demean or to abuse in any way. God values your body. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Shall I take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? Never. He's saying, because the Holy Spirit indwells us in a mystical way, we are connected to Christ. And what that doesn't mean is, well, we're spiritually connected to Jesus, so I can be physically connected to whoever I want. No, 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 no. Paul says, would you take a member of Christ's body and unite it with a prostitute? Of course not. Never. It's a really strong, emphatic word that's used there. It's kind of like, um, perish the thought. And he says, but that's what you're doing when you treat your body or your sexuality trivially, not understanding its worth and purpose. Verse 16, he says, do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body? Because it is said, the two will become one flesh. This is a passage from uh, Genesis 2, 24, a very famous passage where Paul, um, God blesses Adam and Eve and says, this is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife and they become one flesh or the two shall become one flesh. That is the power and the purpose of sex and sexuality. It's a um, a profound unification of two individuals into something that, although mysterious, experience teaches us, moves towards a kind of beautiful, synergistic, fused identity, one flesh union. It's not merely an exchange of sexual desires. It's not um, simply just uh, pleasurable, although it is that. It actually has a spiritual foundation. And Paul is saying here that, and where's my, lost my notes because I was jumping over. He's saying the sexual union has a profound spiritual power to link people together. Notice he says, if you have a flippant attitude and you're like, well, Jesus lives, in, the Holy Spirit lives in my heart, but my body is kind of for me and whatever I want to do with it. I have this urge and I'm going to go and uh, meet that urge or that need through a prostitute. Um, but I don't, I don't intend to like enter into some kind of like deep, significant relationship. Like we're just consensually using each other, each other 
I'm paying for services, and it's you know, kind of on the economic up and up, and then we just walk away. Paul says, no, that's not even how it works. The two shall become one flesh, irrespective of your intention. If you unite yourself to a prostitute, to any person, you become one flesh. This is where in some Christian circles they use the language of soul ties. You won't get the language, the word soul tie in the Bible, but it comes from passages like this, where we are told sexuality is incredibly powerful, and it's never, no matter what state of mind or heart the individuals, or in some cases if it's like an orgy, which Paul talks about later on, a group of people, no matter how cut off from the spiritual or emotional or relational dimension the participants would like it to be, it has profound spiritual, emotional, and relational consequences. Because it has a purpose, it has a design, and that is to take a man and a woman and form through pleasure and self-donation and grace uh, and service a union which becomes a powerful connection point for their marriage, becomes a stabilizing generative force for their family and for communities as well. Sex involves the body and soul always. And I understand how foreign that sounds probably if you've grown up in a, a very progressive sex-positive culture like uh, Nelson or if you just steep in the cultural zeitgeist. We are told in all kinds of ways, like the Corinthians believed, stomach for food and food for, I mean, it's just, it's just your body, just do it, just be safe, whatever that means, and then it, it's fine. And this idea, it's like, no, sex is so good, it is so powerful, it has a purpose, and you can't just ignore that or hope to ignore it, or try and suppress it, or stifle it. You actually have to align yourself with it. Or the result of that sexual union will always be self-sabotaging or destructive. Timothy Keller says this, Sex is a way to say to somebody else, I belong exclusively and completely to you. And if you use it to say anything else, that's a lie. It's a nonverbal piece of communication that God designed, and it's meant to carry a covenant message. It's a mode of communication. And if you use it in any other context, you destroy its usefulness. And again, I want, what I want you to hear, even though I can, I can hear myself saying it, and, 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 and the, there's passion here, but the passion isn't, be careful, sex is really, really bad. It's, sex is really, really good, and it's very powerful. So it can't be something you can be flippant about. It's not like meeting just a physical appetite. You can't divorce it from huge emotional, relational, um, physical, uh, psychological ramifications. And again, Paul returns to this idea, but he who unites himself with the Lord is one with the Lord in spirit. Paul says you have a new spiritual standing in Christ that you have to work backwards from and say, oh, therefore, I have to treat my body with the utmost dignity. And then in verse 18, he says, flee, this is given to the whole community, flee from sexual immorality. Again, that word, porneia, from which we obviously get pornography, 
But in that context, it's a Jewish word that just means any level of sexual engagement, sexual play outside of marriage, um, a heterosexual marriage. So it doesn't matter whether you're talking about adultery or um, uh, exchange of paid sex or just two people who are uh, using each other for one night or whether people are committed but they're not married. It all falls under porneia, and Paul says flee from it. All other sins a man commits outside his body, but he who sins sexually sins against his own body. Sexual sins are serious. They are consequential. And again, he returns to this theme of their position in Christ. He says, do you not know that your body, and he's speaking to everyone, like you as a body, but also your individual bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit, the indwelling presence of God. You've received that from God. You are not your own. You were bought with a price. And then here's the summation principle. Therefore, honor God with your body. And, and I'm not sure we can uh, wrap our heads and hearts around how countercultural that would have been received for them to hear. It would have made sense to honor God or the gods. Now they've converted to Christianity and, oh, Jesus is Lord like in a spiritual sense, he's Lord of my heart, he's Lord of my spirit. So I want to go to church, I want to pray, I want to study the Bible, I want to grow in, I want to spiritually grow. But that understanding would have been divorced from a lot happening over here. Well, the way I conduct my business, though, I mean, business is business, am I right? And sometimes you got to do some shady stuff. You know, what I do with my body, I mean, I got all these urges, I have this, yeah, like, I mean, certainly God wouldn't give me these urges and not want me to actually act on it. Or the way that I want to conduct myself in my, in, in my marriage on the ground level, um, and I want to kind of copy what I see around me, and that is the man is the authoritative head of the household, and he can beat, even kill his wife. I mean, that's something that comes back. You know, certainly God would give me, it's like, no. Your position in Christ has to cause you to go backwards from the future, from the fact that you are redeemed and sealed in Christ, but your body and your embodied existence is just as much an expression of your worship as singing spiritual song. That's why in Romans 12 says, this is your spiritual act of worship, to yield your body, to be a living sacrifice. And that was hard for them to hear. Maybe it's hard for us to hear. It's a huge principle in the Christian life. Honor God with your body. Yes, you can think about that on one level is honor God with your sexuality. We'll talk in the weeks ahead. But what does that mean if I'm single, uh, engaged, married? There's different stages of life. Um, and what does it look like to honor your sexuality that way? But it also means to honor God with your embodied existence. To say, what are my time? What, you know, my time and my talents and my treasures, my skills, my gifts. I'm called to honor God with these things. What does it look like to start your day and to say, God, as I go to work, as I drive my kids to the sport, as I cook this meal, like Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, whatever you do, whether you eat or drink, it doesn't matter. Do it all for the glory of God. What does that look like? That's kind of the great Christian adventure is to say, what does it look like to learn to live my whole life in a way that blesses God and serves my neighbor? There are many ways of using our bodies that are pleasurable, and that are powerful, and that are healing, that are unifying. And there are ways that are destructive, and sinful, and fragmenting, and self-sabotaging. And some of the Bible's most precise 
and strongest repeated commands come through this topic of sexuality. Because when we express our sexuality according to God's design with a heart to use it to honor him, and if we're married, to bless and serve our spouse, then it can become something catalytic and generative and deeply pleasurable and healing and unifying. But when we think we can, in a sense, play with that fire and control it ourselves, whether on the short, medium, or long-term play out, again, it's, it's, unfortunately, it's always the same. It's always the same story. Sex is not evil. Our bodies and our sexual desires are a God-created good thing. But these are powerful things. So when I used to teach students, I used to say, you know, sex is not bad. But sex is powerful. And sex isn't like a tiny little campfire that you can control. It's a little bit more like dynamite. And unless you have the proper context and heart posture and understanding towards it, you know, playing around with dynamite doesn't tend to, to go very well. I got to know there's going to be people here who are going to say, hey, you know what? I know someone or I've gone down the road and I've actually been able to divorce some of the consequences of sex and I'm able to engage in it just as an appetite. And I understand that you can do that for a certain amount of time, but what, what, what is required from you to do that is a kind of intentional uh, numbing uh, to your own uh, heart and life. I mean, I, I mentioned this a few weeks ago. It's, it's not uncommon now for people in public or on po podcasts to brag about having slept with 60, 80, triple digit people. Can you do that? Of course you can. But what you have to do, there's a certain kind of dehumanization that you have to enter into in terms of your own self-understanding and how you understand other people in order to attempt to suppress the spiritual elements of sex. And yet, like Paul says, even when you try to do that, there's still a spiritual exchange happening. Okay, there's a lot there. It's heavy. We'll move into some of the implications for singles and marrieds in the week ahead. But can we just pause and say, okay, I'm going to put you in the pulpit seat. You're the pastor. Um, just, and you don't have to ex explain, but what would be takeaways that you would have for this message? That as we understand that our bodies and how we engage sexually involves us body and soul in a way that was challenging for the Corinthians here to hear, probably challenging for us, what would be some takeaways that you would say, yeah, if I had to teach on this, I would say this is one important lesson from this text. What are the ideas out there? I know talking about anything to do with sex and sexuality in our bodies is sort of awkward and uncomfortable, but it's important to do because if as the church we stay silent, we allow other voices from the culture to fill the gaps. Sex isn't, bad. Sex isn't bad. Yeah, foundational. Genesis 1, God created everything in the heaven and the earth. God saw all that he had made, and it was tov tov. Hebrew, tov, which is good. Repeated twice. Very good. Tov tov. Our embodied existence is good. It's good that we eat. 
It's good that we sweat. It's good that we can take material from the grounds. And it's good that the sexual embrace is good. The way that it generates new life. And even if it doesn't generate new life, that it just facilitates deeper connection and intimacy. That is good. So sex is something which is a gift from God and it should be celebrated and understood as something just like everything else in life, we should seek to honor God. What's another takeaway? Yeah. Yeah, totally. Yeah. What a profound statement, right? Like you are not your own. Well, I'm a Christian. Christ has liberated me from sin. So now I can do whatever I want. And it's like, well, that would only make sense if in liberating you, Jesus said to you, you know, give you a little tap on the butt and say, go for it. Live your life. Do whatever. You go make yourself happy. Is that what God does with the Israelites when he leads them out of Egypt? Does he say, you're free, go Make something of yourself. No, he says, I'm going to give you my instruction. I'm going to give you guardrails. And actually in Deuteronomy, he says, I'm going to teach you how to walk upright because you've been walking as slaves for 400 years. You're bent. You actually don't even know what it means to be human. I'm going to rehumanize you so you can be a light to other people. And when Jesus delivers us, it's not to just forgive us of our sins and now just wait until you die. It's to regenerate us by the Holy Spirit so that we become, and our bodies become, as Paul says uh, somewhere in Romans, I think, we become instruments of righteousness. And now we take hold of the life that is truly life. And now our sexuality and our sexual past can be healed and redeemed, not repressed, not forsaken, and not now just forgiven so that we can now continue to go on and abuse our bodies and abuse other people's bodies but to be a source of healing and hope. Maybe another takeaway. Yeah, Bruce. Yeah, huge, huge principle for the Christian life, right? Of course, you don't have the right to do anything, but God gives you free will. If you wanted to walk out of here and um, damage yourself in some kind of way, you could. But why would you put yourself in a position to be mastered by something? Right? As a Christian, your proclamation is Jesus is Lord. A different word for Lord is master. We are to be increasingly mastered by Jesus and his priorities and the fruit of the Spirit taking hold in our life. So even if you're like, well, I mean, this is the, this is the difference, right? I mean, when I, I remember with this as a Christian teenager when I was like, let me get this straight. Jesus died for my sins. If I ask Jesus for forgiveness, I can have my sins forgiven. I'm still going to heaven, even if I screw up. Oh, this is like the best loophole in the world. I'll just sin, and I'll probably feel genuinely bad about it, and I'll just ask for forgiveness. And, you know, what's wrong with that paradigm is that it assumes sin leads to life and flourishing. So if I just did more of it, then I'd really come alive, right? Oh, so... I know I'm not supposed to, but if I did want to sleep with a different person every week for the next 10 years, I could. That's like, well, you're, the way you're framing that makes it sound like that would be a pattern that would lead you into pleasure in life and freedom. 
but it doesn't because God's ways are always designed to lead us into deeper connection with him, with our own sense of identity and purpose, and with other people. One more application. Sue. Yeah, absolutely. Um, sometimes people can mishear holding up God's ideal and say, well, I didn't live into that ideal. I made lots of mistakes. And maybe the scale of the mistakes are, um, are, are an outlier in terms of you've really racked up abuse against your body, whether it's sexually or because of uh, different substances or just the way you've used your body. And sometimes what we can think is, oh, well, there's a tipping point where there's no coming back from that. And again, this is part of the power of God's redemption, is that God can forgive and redeem and restore. Now, that process might be more involved depending on, in a sense, the, the brokenness and the lostness that we're coming out of. But no one is beyond redemption. No one is beyond hope. God is for, that, that's the whole point of Christianity, is we can be redeemed. And all of us, it doesn't matter how pure you think you've walked, all of us need to have elements of our sexuality healed and redeemed and restored and reoriented towards how to love and honor God. So we're not talking about you know, people who have it together versus people who don't. It's people who need to learn, just like the Corinthians, we all need to learn a new understanding of sexuality. We appropriate it for our relational context, single or married. And then we go on that journey of saying, what does a redeemed God-honoring sexuality looks like? And that's a task for all of us to do. It doesn't matter whether you've been married for 40 years, when you're married, you're dating, you're engaged, marriage isn't on the horizon. These are all questions we want to be working through. Uh, I had a slide here on the next where I kind of talked about things that I thought were important. Do you want to put that up? Um, yeah, but I think we talked a lot about those. I just want to go to the end one where Paul says, flee porneia. Um, obviously, that has an immediate in, uh, implication to us in terms of pornography. I think it's pretty well documented now how damaging uh, pornography is both for male and females. Um, and so... You know, I'll come back to this probably next week, but I think we need to take this seriously and work this out in our individual lives and marriages and families and communities. Um, just like you can't divorce a spiritual connection that happens through any sexual engagement, there's no safe or moderate use of pornography. There's, there's no use of pornography, even if both people within a relationship are consenting to it, Pornography is inherently deformative. It's destabilizing, it's dehumanizing, and we have to take that seriously. Again, I'll talk a little bit more about this next week. But, um, and we also have to understand, again, the broader view that porneia means any kind of sexual engagement outside of marriage. And I will talk to some of the challenges that those who are single uh, or maybe staring down the foreseeable future where you're not being married, and you're like, I don't know what to do with these sexual urges, and that feels like an awful and unfair weight to place on me. Um, so we'll talk a little bit about that next week. 
but the call here is clear that one of the ways that you honor God with your body and your sexuality when you are not married is to flee pornaya. And then within marriage, what we'll talk about in the coming weeks is what does it look like to uh, use your body and your sexuality in a way that is generative and a blessing to your spouse and actually leads to a mutuality expression of pleasure and connection that deepens that bond. I want to close with a question from Timothy Keller. Because if we come back to the start where I said it, it's really important for us not to frame this in a sex-negative way, but to understand it as sex is so powerful and good. And he says, don't you see now why the Bible says sex is, an, is for an absolutely permanent and fully committed relationship where you're in this with your whole self, mind, will, and emotion? and you are completely committed to someone else. Do you see why the Bible says sex has no place outside of a fully committed relationship? Why? Because sex is a model of our relationship with God. The total love and total submission of a complete relationship with God, a total union with him, and the joy that results from it on that day when we will know him face to face. Paul says in Ephesians, he quotes Genesis 2, for this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. And then he says, this is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and his church. The closest thing on one level, I mean, maybe this isn't quite the right way to say it, but one of the closest things to experiencing the ecstasy of Christ returning and establishing a new heavens and new earth is the pleasure experienced by the sexual embrace. It's meant to be a signpost that is a dim hint of what is to come when Christ returns. And that expression of pleasure is meant to be held within a covenant promise between two people. That's why when I talk to younger people and they're like, well, at the end of the day, like we're committed, we're living together. I, I don't see the point of getting married. It's just a piece of paper. I'm always like, oh, great. It's just a piece of paper. Get married. Let's go right now. Right? That's, that's where the, the processing starts coming in. Like, oh, 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 oh. Right? Because you know it's not just a piece of paper. It's a giving fully of yourself. And it's meant to be a gift from God to couples who want to enter into that generative, um, and I mean generative in the broadest way, not just the uh, procreation of children, but the procreation of a union, which is uh, super beneficial for children and families and communities. But it's not enough to just to flee pornography. We actually have to pursue something else. And that's why I would say it's, I'm not sure how you can come at sexuality in a way that is honoring and redemptive without Christ. It's not enough to flee pornography. You must also pursue Christ because the power and the promise and the purpose of sex can only really be fully unlocked when our hearts are aligned with Christ, when we are seeking to honor him and to say, what does it look like for me to use my sexuality and my body in a way that honors God? And that's why we need Jesus, because we're all, to some degree, sexually misaligned and disoriented or broken. We need to reorient our understanding and expression of sexuality so that it aligns with God's purposes. And, and we need him to redeem and to restore those places of sexual brokenness and damage and abuse within us. 
so that sex can become something healing and deep and a powerful source of connection within marriages that reverberate in ways that bless and serve communities. So until next week, may we do some thinking around what does it mean to pursue Christ and to honor God with our bodies and our sexuality. Let's pray. I'll invite the worship team up. God, this is a gift that is challenging for us to not just understand properly, but to enact properly. We live in a culture that just so distorts and lies to us about what sex is for, what our bodies are for, that invites us, like Joel was saying, into a radically self-serving autonomy that says, well, my life is my own. I can do whatever I want. And your word says, there's a way that seems right to men, but in the end it leads to death. And God, some of us here would say, yeah, I've, I've gone down that road and it hasn't led to life and flourishing. I've ignored what God has to say. But as we turn to you, God, as we pursue you, would you bring healing into these places in our lives? And as we look at these next few chapters in Corinthians in the weeks ahead, would you use it to strengthen our marriages, strengthen and affirm those who are in this uh, time of singleness? And may we all do fresh work um, through your spirit to contend and to grapple with what does it look like for me to honor God with my body? In Jesus' name, amen. Please rise and let's worship together.